This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. On the Essex coastline, about six or seven miles south of Colchester, there's an area of land, it's like a, a peninsula really, it's known as Tollsbury Wick. And it's bound on the south by the Blackwater Estuary and then on its northern edges by Tollsbury Fleet. And then that water races past us and then heads out into the North Sea. It's an intriguing landscape, not least because of its vast scale, but it also has this great sea wall, it's about five or six miles long, that coils its way around Tollsbury. On the inside you have these great freshwater marshes. Beyond it there are hundreds and hundreds of creeks which dissect the salt marshes. And that is a lived-in and a worked in landscape, both on the salt and on the fresh side. And then behind me, where Tollsbury sits, this is um, a place with a great sailing and a boating history that dates back three, four hundred years, even beyond that. So that's what I've come to explore for this week's open country. I think the best place to try and understand this place at Tollsbury Wick is to head over to the seawall, where at least we'll get a little bit of elevation. And I'm going there to meet Dave Smart. He is the reserve manager with the Essex Wildlife Trust. This is a lovely day, aren't we? Isn't it wonderful today? Yeah, it's a bit fresh oh. this morning, but it's um, turned out nice again, as they say. OK, so we're just going to just take a little run up this grassy bank onto the top of the seawall and there was a damselfly flew up in front of us oh right now so I feel yeah but I feel I'm standing between two worlds here so try and explain it for me you are (laughs) you are standing between two worlds so on this seaward side of the seawall we've got the salt marsh we've got the mud flats we've got what we would call here Tollsbury South Channel, Tollsbury North Channel beyond the yacht moorings. So we've got the seaside here. We've got the old seaside, if you like, down below the wall that we've just climbed up. So this is Tollsbury Wick Marshes, but it's not salt water, it's fresh water. So the wall that we're standing on really has its origins all the way back three, four hundred years when sea walls were starting to be built in the county of Essex for agricultural improvement. Not to protect the inhabitants, but to make the land productive. To make the land productive. So they were turning it from a saltwater system Mm -hmm. to a freshwater system. So it was better for sheep grazing, because at that time there would have been a lot of money in wool and in lamb and in sheep's milk. Mm -hmm. And it was in the landowner's interest to start to build these walls around the salt marsh to um, create an entirely different system. It's the scale of the place that we're looking at. First of all, this wall, I mean, it's grass-covered. You, you, in a way, you would hardly know it was a man-made construction. But how long is it and how does it wend its way around the place? It starts at one end, effectively. comes all the way around the peninsula for um, some several kilometres. It's uh, about 10 k's, I think, in total, in walling the whole of Tollsbury Marshes, which is about 250 hectares. Mm. 
and it encompasses the various different habitats there's the fresh water so the this sort of canal if you like which runs parallel with the sea wall we call the borodike and it's called the borodike because the soil has been taken from there and it's been put on here where we're standing so this bank has been built so the, the canal if you like is as a result of that all of the other internal waterways on the old marsh which is to the northern half of the site they are the old creek systems of the former salt marsh <laughs> so where this used to be a salt marsh three or four hundred years ago the relief of the land is still the same it's still what we would call a humpy bumpy marsh uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound very technical you see the cows there you can see the tussocky grass from last year and everywhere are these little bumps and all those little bumps are an anthill an ant yellow meadow ant yeah so each ant hill has got thousands and thousands of ants in it and they develop their own little microclimate. So depending on which way they face determines the kind of flora which grows on it. So on the north side of the ant hill it'll be more mossy because it's darker and cooler and there'll be more flowering plants on the south side. <laughs> and is this still active in the landscape, oh, these yeah. ants? Yeah, yeah. Oh. we're going to have a look. You hear the Brent geese? Yeah. So we're October, we're just as two there, look. Dark-bellied Brent geese. We're definitely within the wintering bird season, so things are starting to come back from their more northern climes where they breed to spend a nice warm winter on the Essex coast. Right. The Russell's bush cricket going in there. Yeah. It sounds like a freewheeling bike, the rear wheel <laughs> of a bike, you know? Yeah. When you get older, you can't hear those apparently, so I can still hear it. <laughs> What we can do, actually, Dave, is I'd love to go and take a closer look at those anthills. And let's see what else we can spot on the way down. Because with such flat lands as we have here across the marsh, I presume they're great hunting grounds for raptors and things, so keep our eyes open for some of those. This is a really good place for birds of prey, particularly in the wintertime. So now we're seeing things like peregrines come down to the coast, short-eared owl... And one of the specialities here in the winter would be hen harrier. Mm. Oh, the burble of the curlew is just lovely. And then the wind's just catching the tops of the reeds along the sides of the waterways. So you have that um, almost like a sizzling noise in the air sometimes. But look on the far side there and suddenly you're reminded that, you know, we're not far away from man and industry. On the far side of the Blackwater estuary? Yeah. That would be Bradwell. That's, that's Bradwell Power Station, mm, yeah. Mm. So that's one of the uh, the earliest nuclear power stations, which uh, stopped generating power, I think, in 2002. And they've been decommissioning it ever since. Right, so if we just dip off this track and have a look in the grass. This just looks like a large, you know, turned over sod of earth, really. It's an anthill. Here we go, look. We just gently ease that soil apart, the moss and oh, the grass. Got it, got them. There and they there are. There they are. And that just little sort of amber-bodied ant, really, isn't it? This is the, the yellow meadow ant, which lives in its tens of millions on the marsh. If you left your lawn in your garden and you didn't cut it, you would start to have ant hills appear in your garden. 
but because you're constantly running your mower up and down, then that succession isn't allowed to take place. Whereas here, when that seawall got put up and the tide was no longer able to come on this land, the ants started to colonise, started to build their little nests, but because the land hasn't been moved with a plough ever, this kind of landscape has been able to develop. So this is about at least two feet across and that almost maybe a foot and a half tall. And this is one of the humpy bump bits. This, yeah, this, this is what makes it humpy bumpy. <laughs> I love that. This, this, this is what makes it humpy bumpy, but also these undulations here. So I'm just going to move a few feet this way mm -hmm. and I'm in one of the old salt marsh creeks. But it's now full of grass. Yeah, and again, these vary in their size. If we walk across, mm -hmm. we'll find some much bigger ones. And as it starts to rain and we go through the winter, these fill up. And that's what you want. That's, that's a good thing. Want. That's what yes, we want. Yes, because yeah. then there's a whole new habitat that's it, yeah. for different creatures yeah. in the wintertime. There's not many of these places left in this condition. So coastal grazing marsh, which hasn't been ploughed, which has only had animals graze it, since its inception are really quite unusual and there's only a few places in Essex where it exists in this state so it's very important for that to continue the wildlife value is very high but it goes beyond that I don't know it's it's intrinsic to this part of Essex and it's just a fantastic thing to be able to contribute to it carrying on like this really oh it's just brilliant Got a hawk, and it it's is holding, yeah, holding position. Yes, and for lunch. It's the yeah, tiny movement up. of the wing, isn't it? Isn't it the way it holds itself there? It's just, it's always such a wonderful thing to see. Yes. We were hearing how these are fantastic hunting grounds for birds of prey. It's doing it again. Look at that, holding in the sky, that power and agility that it has to keep in that spot. Do you think it'll swoop? Generally not while you're watching. Turn away and it'll plunge. <laughs> That's bird watching for you, isn't it? Well, just as we take in that moment of nature, I'm with Colin Drake. You're from Tollesbury. Your family worked here in the industry. Indeed, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. I'm fifth generation. They were boat builders yeah. and repairers. There's some haulage of boats just behind us there. So let's head out onto this seawall, Colin. Well, we're walking on a part of it, but you can't really see where it is in the landscape. It's beautiful. There are few features, but it is a beautiful area. It is a natural area, but almost featureless, yes. Yes. Well, does that make it beautiful to you or oh, plain yes. and ugly? Yes, it, it's, a, it's the blue skies, it's the distance, it's the freedom from the oppression of too much building. We love it. <laughs> And tell me more about this seawall, and your family had a connection with it. So let's try and see if we can discover the history of the seawall. So at one point the salt marsh would have protected the farming land and the village, but the point came when they said we have to build a seawall to do that more effectively. When was that? We think about 300 years ago. I don't think anybody's got a definite handle on it, but looking at various maps, we reckon about 300 years ago. It stretches in front of us, and it takes this great path round, well, in some ways, the up 
absolute horizon of our view. The building was done to a degree by immigrant Dutchmen. This wall goes right the way around to Mersey in one direction and to Malden up the river in the other direction. So we're talking many, many, many miles of barrow work and the removal of mud. People from Holland coming over to do it? Yes, certainly my family were uh, hailed from Holland, who obviously saw a huge opportunity in England because we had a lot of submerged land which needed to be reclaimed to grow crops for people to eat. Uh, The Dutch had become perfectionists at that and, of course, there was an opportunity. So my great-great-grandfather came across and started working maintaining the already existing sea walls. We're talking 1820. We know for certain he was there then and we know he was there in 1830 because that's the time that uh, he was employed by uh, Mr Philip Bennett and Mr Philip Bennett contracted Isambard Kingdom Brunel to put in a siphon across the wall to remove the surplus surface water because that was stopping the sheep from grazing. (laughs) Was he the right man for the job? Well, he should have been. He was unknown at the time. He was working on the Clifton Suspension Bridge at the time, so he was a known construction engineer. But this appears to have been a, a step too far for him because it was never really successful. In fact, he had two goes, two attempts. He had lots of problems and they got lots of leaks, air got into the system and it was not very successful at all. So by 1832, somebody gave up, either Brunel or the landowner, because they stopped it. But there's many times when Drake, which was my great-great-grandfather, was told to do more tamping of the mud around the siphon because we've got leaks in the thing. <laughs> so your great-great-grandfather, get the greats right, he was, a seawaller. He, he was Dutch. When you come into this part of Essex, mm-hmm. you get quite a strong sense of a Dutch feeling in the very architecture of some of the houses in Tolsbury. And Colchester. Yes, and of the windmills in the landscape and then obviously of this seawall yeah. You do? The, the knowledge about these people and why they came uh, is all forgotten. And yet, this place possibly wouldn't exist if it wasn't for oh, the no, seawall. You, you had to have the right technologies, like you always do. Work was done on the seawalls here uh, at the end of the Second World War. We had, uh, first of all, some Italian prisoners of war working on behalf of the catchment board, it was in those days, and they were followed by German prisoners of war and they did an excellent job. They were instrumental in doing repair work to the seawalls and at that time they did raise them. It's happened since as well. I've come out onto what you would call like the seaward side of the marsh. I'm looking out across Tolsbury Fleet, but between me and that slightly more open piece of water, you've got, again, this labyrinth of channels which you see parts of across this very low-lying salt marshland. And, you know, we've heard about the great engineering, but also this is a place that had a, a real creative element for people. It was very inspirational. And what I'm going to do now in the company of James Canton from the University of Hello. Essex 
James, I, I am sorely tempted now to go down this slope. Sure. Across that slightly muddy part at the bottom. Do you see there's a little wooden footbridge? It Absolutely. Takes us out into yeah, the yeah. Are, are you willing to give it a go? I'll lead the way. I'll lead the way. Oh, you're very brave and gallant. On you go. <laughs> well, we've got a good day for it, so it, it should be dry under underfoot. Oh, the little rack line of uh, dead crabs there. I oh, always yes. line out the pale Look. skeletal figures just sort of scattered. And you, you often get this. You get these kind of bursts of them. Where the, t- where, the, where the high waters ebbed to and then left them stranded. Yeah, that's right. Can I just point out the samphire as well? Now, everyone thinks samphire's green, but at this time of year, that's the colour it goes. Um, a beautiful purple-red. So we're heading out over the planks, yeah? The tide's coming in, so it's getting higher. Yeah, look at the flow of water under the bridge. Yeah. Oh! And as we walk across now this bit of inner marsh, you can see how the water will have flooded up, covered the grass and then disappeared again. But what it leaves behind on the green or the reds of the samphire are like a greyish coating. Mm -hmm. The the clay has settled out of the water Mm -hmm. and it's just, in a way, it dulls down the colours. It makes Mm -hmm. it look bare and bleak. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking out here over, these are called coastal saltings. So effectively, as you can see, these marshlands, as the water is actually rising, we've got about 20 minutes, I reckon. And you've got all this amazing wildlife. You've got this incredible, and we've just had an egret fly over, which are very common now in this area. Beautiful landscape. So people come for that as much as anything. There's no one here. You know, we love to escape. We love to be out in landscapes like this on our own. And I think that's the one of the things about all these Essex marshes, you know, they're very... They're very evocative, they're very romantic. And that's often where the literature comes in. When you're lecturing, you talk about um, wild writing. It is a master's course in literature combined with the biological sciences, so people are able to develop their knowledge of, say, I don't know, um, sustainability, coastal regions, that kind of thing. We then look at the literature in the seminar room. We then come out, often in the same session, two places and talk about right what have we learned from the literature what do we know of this landscape how do we combine them sort of thing look how quickly that water has risen now it is masking the the bare soil it's come right up to the vegetation yeah James, I let's, got a foot left yeah we? let's make our way back it is coming in actually isn't it really what we want people to do is come out here effectively largely as a literature student and we'll be ta- we might talk here about Marjorie Allingham for example, crime you know, writer crime writer, mm-hmm. significant writer. You know, she's. If you look at how many people read her books, you know, she's she's great. She was overshadowed a bit by Agatha Christie and things, really, wasn't she? The, yeah. in, in some ways, I mean, there was some crossover. But you know, she came out here from West London, and she absolutely loved it here. And her first book, aged seventeen, was written about that island over there, Mersey Island. And it's called Black Chief Dick. Very hard to get anymore. About a Spanish pirate set in the 17th century, I think it was. There is a degree of mystery and dark secret about these sorts of places because they are not for those who do not have knowledge. There are places where secret things can happen because they're inaccessible mm, to others. Very much. Yeah. This is kind of a lawless place as well, you know. We are literally standing beyond the boundaries of the kind of the law or the land, if you like. We're kind of in an in-between zone. And her book, Black Chief Dick, as a number of books about the Essex marshes, are about that battle, if you like, between the, the villagers 
who would quite happily take the smuggling, they would be looking after the smugglers. It, it portrays something of what this landscape is like as a literary aspect. Clamber up onto the seawall again sure. so we can just see how that tide is flowing in. Yes, very much. It, it is a landscape you have to be wary of as well. You have to show respect to. If we stretch our eyes, do you know what I mean, beyond that last rim of uh -huh. land, we've got the yeah. boats, we are actually then beginning to look out into the North Sea. East. We're on the edge. Yeah. We're in a very exposed um, landscape. You know, all the elements of rain and wind, they just take the human being, don't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. Without remorse. It is something to keep aware of, and obviously it's one of those themes in a lot of the literature of the place here as well. People die in the water. In Mahala, in Blackchief Dick, this is what happens. It's, it's where you go to die. Oh my goodness, that's yeah. ominous. Yeah, no, very much, yes. This is an ominous landscape. But, you know, it's all right today. I think we're okay. <laughs> don't worry, okay. Helen, don't worry. <laughs> Shall we walk along this way? Yeah. I love this here. Oh yeah, the so rose see, hips. The, the red of yeah, rose hip yeah. just glows out of the decaying grass, doesn't it? Isn't that fantastic? It's the apart from maybe some of the paintwork on the wee sailing boats, that's the only bit of bright colour. Yes, often is. It's it's such a sight of autumn, isn't it? The rose hips. The yeah. red rose hips, mm. I should say. There's love and danger. The sun's just come out for you as well. And the birds are singing. To come to Tolsbury and to walk out across the, the, the wick and the marshes, you always have this presence of boats. You see their sails, you see them moving up and down the creeks. So I'm hoping if I come into this work shed here... Yep, here he is. Flavian Capes is currently working on... Oh my goodness, this is a long, long, long boat. Lovely long. Is this a very traditional boat for this uh, these waterways? Very traditional in terms of it being a very new tradition. It's concrete. What? How can you possibly have a concrete boat? <laughs> a lot of people can't get to grips with the fact that concrete does float as long as it displaces water. Mm -hmm. And it displaces its own weight of water and then what's left is you can fill it with what you like. <laughs> I had heard that people in... Tolsbury were pretty skilled when it came to building craft, but I wasn't really expecting to come across a concrete one, I have to say, Flavian. <laughs> or somebody are. called Flavian, for that matter. You don't get many of us, no. no. Apparently it's Nero's real name too, but I'm not sure how true that is. I haven't researched <laughs> that properly yet. I was going to be called Caractacus. <laughs> <laughs> but they had a change of heart. Yes. And for you boats, you have spent your whole life being on boats in these channels, these sea channels. Creeks. Yes, yes, I was born mm -hmm. here. My father was a fisherman. We used to go out collecting shellfish when we were skint and couldn't afford a meal. My father would go fishing, he'd take me out into the North Sea. There was always a boat in our backyard being fixed, and so it kind of. It was going to be your stuck. life. Yeah. 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 Um, there was, you know, fishing in the creeks, picking samphire for hotels. There was all sorts of things going on. Just to eke a living. Yes. So that you could stay here, families could stay yes. here. Yes, this yeah. was a very poor village mm. until it became, uh, let's say, um, within the range of uh, the London commuter belt. It's not so poor anymore. <laughs> you still go out on your boat? Yes, mostly because I really love the water. It's not like sailing out into the open sea. You've got to navigate so much before you can do that. Yes, 
mud banks and shingle banks and sand banks and the odd turns and twists in the creek. When you're kind of born here and grew up here, you, you just know it. It's mapped out in your mind. You know, it's like the, the palm of your hand. You know, <laughs> you know what scars you've got on your hand. You know where the creeks bend. You know where there's mud banks. You know where there's wrecks. You know where there's stakes and strange things to cause you problems. So you just know it. There's mm. not a problem. Even though I've been doing it since I was seven or younger, I'm still scared out of my wits most of the time. If the weather's absolutely fine and calm and like today, for instance, then it's a bliss to be there and I'm not scared. But, you know, um, it can kill you. Yes, yeah, so I'm naturally wary. Uh, scared could be another word for having a healthy respect for it. <laughs> Do you get a longing to go out on the marsh? If I'm not there for a long time. A long time is about a week. And what are you seeking? I don't know, really. Um, I'd love the solace of it. And it's one place in the world where... I feel at peace. There aren't very many other places.